that's all right. I got it. <laughs> I'll just sit under the table. Okay, great. Hi, and good evening. I'm Stephen Kroll, as I guess most of you know. I'm the chairman of our Penn Children's Book Authors Committee. And it's lovely to see you all here on this cold evening for what I think is going to be a wonderful and fascinating evening uh, with some, needless to say, very wonderful and fascinating people on our panel. Uh, one uh, small announcement. Uh, most of you will have received the flyer that said Virginia Kroll, my namesake, uh, was to appear on this panel. Uh, unfortunately, uh, her youngest son was taken ill and she's been unable to come. So uh, most delightfully and graciously, Ellen Levine has agreed to take uh, Jimmy Crow's place. So we have Ellen Levine on our panel instead. Uh, Vera B. Williams, as you know, will be our moderator. Uh, Vera is the author, illustrator of 11 children's books, uh, all of them quite distinguished. Two of them, a uh, chair from my mother, and more, 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 said the baby, uh, Caldecott honor winners. And one of them, uh, the most recent, Scooter, uh, was the winner of last year's Hornbook Fiction Award. Uh, Vera tells me that her very first book, Hooray for Me, which she did with Remy Charlotte, is about to be reissued. So that's uh, kind of a nice plus as well. Uh, all of Vera's work has uh, been involved in creating a world in which all different kinds of people share. Uh, very appropriate for uh, an evening like this. She has also, through most of her life, been involved in feminist, anti-nuclear, and anti-war activities. Uh, and I would now like to turn the evening over to her. Vera. That was a nice introduction. Can everyone hear me? Okay. Hello, everybody. I know so many people here um, that I'm saying a special hello, but of course the hello is for people I don't know, too. Okay. Um, when uh, Stephen talked to me about uh, what he should say uh, to introduce me, uh, I forgot to ask him to add that though I have been a strong advocate uh, for uh, certain points throughout my life. I have also long been uh, somewhat of a puzzler, uh, a worrier and uh, a person interested in the many ins and outs and uh, layers of thoughts and feelings that make up the questions uh, that I have been a strong advocate for. Um, I like, in fact, uh, I love to talk about issues that um, move beyond or to talk about issues in a way that moves beyond uh, strict side taking and positions. And uh, I'm really excited that we could get together this group of people uh, for tonight uh, to do that. And I think that uh, we will be able to some, uh, some of the people whose work I know well and others I have to say that I don't, but I have looked through uh, the material that they have sent me, and I see that 
the books of this group of people range through those subjects, uh, not just of our time, but I would say uh, of life, uh, uh, sex, freedom, suicide, uh, ethnic and race relations, religion, family, love and hate, um, all the things that make up um, literature and also nonfiction. Uh, of course, uh, the reason that we are talking about them as tough subjects for tough time is because they are for young people. And there has long been a big debate as to what is all right to put in books for young people and how young are young people and so forth. Now, there were a few little things I wanted to, to tell you that uh, sort of came into my mind as uh, sort of highlighting these questions. I remember myself, age 12, standing next to my mother in a well-filled room of the Modern Museum in front of a painting called Brothel there. What is a brothel, I asked my mother in a loud voice. Actually, I knew from surreptitious <laughs> reading in my parents' bookcase, whose books are very useful, even if they're not for children, in order so that you don't find out things. But she said, I will tell you, but we don't need to talk so loud here, <laughs> right? So a big question is how loud and where, right? That's a big question. That always comes up. It, it's not just a question of people who want to keep their heads in the sand about everything. It is a real question. Um, when I was uh, 17 and a half years old or so, I was a student at Black Mountain College in North Carolina. This would be about 1946. All students were, all students, that's about 100, and 100 students at most. <laughs> we were all summoned late at night by the dinner gong to an emergency meeting. There we were told of and discussed with the, about the arrest of the head of our faculty uh, in a nearby city for what was called a crime against nature. It took some explaining for most of us to know that meant a homosexual act. It was a serious offense in North Carolina, and our faculty member and friend, it was a small school and we were all quite close, disappeared from our lives. Uh, he was fortunately allowed to leave the, I, I mean fortunately in an odd sense, I mean he didn't go to prison, but he was allowed to leave the state quietly. Probably we were the only college in the country at that time where it would have been thought not only proper, but educationally necessary to discuss this with students of 17, 18, and 19. Now, we could see the kinds of things that are discussed in books now and for what age is the way these things change over the decades. Which, um, uh, at the same school, it was felt necessary and educationally right to discuss uh, a program to uh, move the college towards being an interracial institution. That this is in the early in the mid forties, which was the early times of that in a southern state. Um, but the question of what age it is good to tell people what is part of the toughness of this topic, I think, and one that always comes up. Later, when I was a parent and part of a parent-run elementary school for kids from five through high school, we and sometimes the children too were constantly embroiled in, well, you can't be sometimes constantly embroiled, but <laughs> we were often embroiled in <laughs> discussion of what uh, 
what uh, they appropriately and educationally could say, could write on walls, could read, could see, and how explicit. And this was not just sex, I want to point out, but violence, anger, divorce, uh, ugly, petty politics between grown-ups, uh, and uh, many parents felt that only parents should be the people to discuss that with their children, that this was not the duty of schools or books or movies. Uh, and that conversation went on and on. One little element of it that I was, was that my children had uh, yuck lists or hate lists, right? And they were always trying to get me to add people to these lists and to agree with them about this. And I felt um, and was rather dishonest about this. Uh, I, I felt that that was not the right thing for a, a grown-up to put their self behind. The, the view that there were some people who were more nicer and more liked than other people. Uh, so I always denied that I had anybody to add to these lists. But um, I in that way, uh, I think I was a little dishonest. And a lot of what we talk about, about what could be in, in books for children, how we can talk about those books, uh, those, those, um, those problems, uh, involves a lot of questions of honesty and how honest and how fully. Uh, a few years ago, Smoky Nights, uh, which dealt with, which is a picture book that dealt, uh, deals with the uh, riots in Los Angeles, uh, one Eric Caldecott, and uh, there is a lot of talk about how you handle such a thing and whether you could handle it and whether it was well handled or whether it was honestly told. Um, in in a book for children that age, so these are these are all parts of, I think, what uh, comes under this question, of, uh, this whole topic, tough questions for tough times. I think that we here who are interested in this, we who write these books, publish this, uh, are in some sense beyond the question of whether to admit any of these uh, things into books. Books. Many books come out, certainly for young adults and even for younger children, with very controversial matters in them. So what we have tonight to share is a lot of different ex uh, thoughts and experiences on the range of what we all have put in our books. So I'm going to introduce people now, and each one is going to talk for something around 10 minutes, and then we will uh, have, I hope, a lively discussion. I hope that everybody will will join in and ask questions and, uh, and share in the conversation. Uh, so here we go. Uh, the first person who is going to speak is Susan Kitchen here. Susan is a friend of mine, and we have very rewarding talks on uh, aspects of these tough subjects uh, that we will share tonight. Susan is a photographer, an oral historian, and interviewer. And she has been a teacher and has great rapport with young people of junior high and high school age which has helped her come up with powerful interviews and photos. I, I envy this in her because I don't have very good rapport with people that age. But I, I think it's a great talent. <laughs> but I do. <laughs> her books, of which she has written and illustrated 21, and illustrated which she has both written and illustrated 21, and illustrated another eight, cover a great range. Many deal with the kind of... Uh, material uh, that I've been referring to, but others don't. There is, for instance, Speaking Out, Teenagers Talk About Sex, 
uh, and Pregnancy, which was selected by the Hungry Mind Review as the best book in 1993. But there is also the 1996 Fireworks, The Science, the Art, and the Magic, and the 1995 Kodomo, uh, The Children of Japan. Now, I mentioned these other books to point out that uh, we writers who include what turn out to be controversial questions are not simply folks out looking for a fight, uh, but people attracted by the fullness and excitement of life, uh, which uh, shows up in the variety of, of, of things in the book. Some of Susan's other titles are Fighting Back, What Some People Are Doing About AIDS, After a Suicide, Young People Speak Up, uh, Irrepressible Spirit, this is uh, a very new book, Conversations with Human Rights Activists, and I believe it's your longest, is that true? Okay. And um, Susan is going to talk to us uh, uh, about her work. That's a great introduction. I'm glad we always have two together in lunch. <laughs> um, I'd like to talk a little bit about, about what some of the responsibility a writer has who's dealing in nonfiction with these really tough subjects. And in order to do that, I'm going to first give you a little story from my book that's coming out on human rights and human rights abuses called Irres Irrepressible Spirit. Um, I want to tell you the story of Lin Lin. Now, that's not her real name. When Lin Lin was 13 years old, her mother died and her father remarried. Shortly thereafter, her father took her from their Burmese village to a town just across the border from Thailand. There, an agent met him and gave him 1,200 baht, that's $480 US, um, and assured the father that she would have a job working in Thailand as a maid or a, a waitress. They put Lin Lin on a bus, Lin Lin who was really illiterate uh, and certainly did not speak Thai. They sent her to Bangkok where she was met by another agent and that agent took her to the Ram D. Prom brothel. On her third day, Lin Lin was put to work. She was raped repeatedly, she was beaten, and she was beaten really until she consented to becoming a prostitute. She was told that she could not return home until her debt of 12,000 baht was paid off by her work. Uh, this is called debt bondage, and over a million women a year are forced kidnapped or hoodwinked into the situation in Southeast Asia alone. There are studies that in, in uh, South America, there are now studies that do it too, and even here in New York, there are some debt bondage uh, uh, brothels. Um, tough times, tough subjects, I think so. Now, is this a subject for young adults? And my answer is you betcha. Uh, now, how do you tell Lin, Lin Lin's story? And my answer to that is very, very carefully. Uh, when I began working on this book, uh, I fortunately te teamed up with Human Rights Watch, who gave me access to all their files, all their monitors, all their material, and, and I started reading it, and I became extremely depressed, more so than I ever had been before on some of those other stories. Uh, and I, I, just, I just couldn't, I couldn't figure out how to handle this awful material in a way that would have some kind of redeeming value. I was also fact, uh, faced with the fact that many of my older books on tough set subjects were beginning to go out of print. My backlist numbers were starting to fall. And I found out that there was less of a market for these YA books than had previously been because of all the cutbacks. So it was an economic situation. 
budgets for YA books have been cut in schools and in libraries. So you put those two issues together and I was one unhappy camper, I will tell you. Um, a few weeks ago, let me just digress for a minute. A few, a few weeks ago at the, the library, New York Public Library, Salman Rushdie spoke and he was asked after his speech, um, what's good about having a fatwa on your head? And his reply, there is nothing good about a death sentence, nothing at all. And then he paused and he thought about it for a moment and he said, however, good things can come of it. And he talked on and on about friends who rallied behind him and, and priorities and you know all that, that good stuff. And when I think about you know, the terrible things that I was reading and writing about, there really are good things that can come out of it in the guise of the people who are willing to stand up and speak out, sometimes at pain of death, you know, where they can really threaten drastically and, and, and almost, and some have lost their lives because of it. But there are people who will not stay silent. And so in reporting Lin Lin's life, I was also able to report about Janine Guthrie. Janine Guthrie is a young woman from uh, Wisconsin who now lives here in New York and is a human rights uh, researcher for Human Rights Watch, Watch Southeast Asia. And it was Janine who cared, who cared for the monitors, who cared for Lin Lin and people like Lin Lin. It was Janine and her friends who reported this to the world so that maybe something could be done about it, even though nothing so far has been done about it. And, and uh, people like that I found extremely inspiring. So I went from the point of being utterly depressed to utterly elated that there were these marvelous people in the world and that was sort of the, the basis of, of this book. Now, interestingly, in all these subjects, my publisher has never ever tried to censor my material. Um, they're never afraid to take on the diffi difficult material covered in the books and in other ones that I've worked, worked for, worked on. But I have, uh, and I've never received a nasty letter so far. I mean, I've never gotten a right librarians, right-wing politicians, nobody has, maybe no one even notices, I don't know, but they just have never uh, written to me in anything negative. I've been on two radio shows where there have been right-wingers who've said some pretty revolting things, but I didn't know that they were right-wingers until I got in the middle of, of it. But, but other than that, there's been, been nothing. Um, and I think part of it is because the introductions to my books are extremely extensive. I explain exactly what the point of the book is so that if anyone doesn't want to deal with it, they don't have to buy it. But they know up front what the story is about. Now, in, in my book, Irrepressible Spirit, for the first time, the lawyers of my publisher, my publisher's Putnam, I might as well announce it, um, became very nervous. And that's because this is the first time I started naming names. I believe that if a, a doctor in Bosnia rapes his cohorts who are Bosnian and someone talks about it and wants to put their name in it, I should do so too. And I believe that if there's a, a warden in, in Cuba who did some pretty horrible things to someone who I interviewed and he wants that person's name in it, I should do that too. So I put those names in, whereas usually I'm very careful about hiding anything that, that could be harmful. But these people I really kind of didn't mind harming a little bit. Um, the lawyers got nervous and they wanted documentation and as soon, so I provided them with, with careful documentation and as soon as I did, they backed off. And so far, everybody has been extremely supportive on this. Now, although there's no censorship on, uh, on the part of the pu publisher, there has to be a certain amount of censorship 
on the part of the person working with these people because there's a very, very fine line between reporting some an incident and, and um, uh, exploiting the person. And let me go back to Lin Lin for one moment. When the news broke about these brothels and, and, and uh, trafficking of young children, every reporter, photographer, and her grandparents seemed to rush to want to get a story from the person. Lin Lin was moved back to the border to be rehabilitated, was really taken care of and brought back to her family's home. But while she was in this sort of holding place, the reporters got a hold of her and started questioning her, and she had to relive this whole horrible trauma all over again. Then they went about publishing her photograph, her real name, not Lin Lin, her real name, and her address. Therefore, she was raped again, as far as I'm concerned, by the reporters. She could not go back to her village, and she is still in this holding thing because she couldn't, she couldn't face her family after bringing such shame. That, to me, is a really scary part of what I do because you really have to be very, very careful between the, two, between the exploiting and the, um, uh, uh, the reporting. And, and I just hope and pray that by my writing this in the book that I'm not raping Lee Lin, Lin Lin once again. Thank you. has written many books, and uh, uh, she received the uh, 1993 the ALA uh, Young Adult Library Services Association uh, Award called the Margaret A. Edwards Award uh, for the following books. I believe, uh, am I right in saying it's a specific book? Dinky Hawkers Did Smack, Gentle Hands, uh, Me, 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 Not a Novel, that's, that's the name of it, and Night Type, right? And, uh, I was interested uh, in, in the way they characterized uh, the reason they gave this award. The citation speaks of uh, Emmy Kerr as one of the pioneers in realistic fiction for teenagers. Her courage to be different and to address tough current issues without compromising and with a touch of leaven and humor has earned her place in young adult literature and in the hearts of teenagers. Uh, I would like to avoid reducing uh, these books, which I am not acquainted with, actually, uh, but even by uh, 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 naming them just as books uh, uh, about this or that embattled subject, uh, uh, because they are part of a, uh, of a rich uh, fiction, uh, and uh, uh, the characters and, and the stories are, are the life of the book. And to say that this one is about this and this one is about that, uh, I think it reduces that. But uh, I was struck uh, going over the material that uh, uh, the range of, uh, of um, things we that are part of the web of our of our current life uh, that is in these books. Night Type, written in uh, 1986, uh, already included a character who became ill with AIDS, and uh, uh, quite uh, another aspect. Uh, of uh, of something that uh, certainly has been part of uh, of our lives, 
it's from a book called Gentle Hands that came out in 1978 and includes the experience of a young person discovering his grandfather has been a notorious Nazi. Uh, so that, and, and there are of course many variety of subjects in between, but that gives you a little idea of the range. Uh, so I think that I will now introduce you and you can tell us about uh, your work. Thank you. I've written two books for the young adult audience on the subject of homosexuality. One was the first book, Adult or Young Adult, uh, Dealing with AIDS. It was written for Harper Collins. I wrote it in 1984. AIDS was called GRID then, Gay-Related Immune Deficiency. That book's called Night Kite. The other, written 10 years later, deals with lesbianism. Uh, it's called Deliver Us from Evie. I think homosexuality is a very tough subject because the law, religion, and the military send conflicting opinions. In some places, it's against the law. In some religions, it's forbidden. And in some, it is taught that God loves the homosexual, but it is anathema to practice homosexuality. In the military, it's okay to be one, but not okay to admit you are one. It's the safe prejudice. If a homosexual joke is told in public, unless the teller is running for public office, people might consider it offensive, but it's not likely to have the reaction there would be if it was a joke about a Jew, a black, a Native American, etc. Even as I talk now, there may be a few in this audience who are still thinking, but that's different, because that's a choice. That's something one elects to be. And even some of those who do understand that it's an orientation and not a preference still ask the question, why announce it? Still see the homosexual as a horizontal person. Why announce what goes on in the bedroom, they ask, never seeing us as people who have a life beyond that room, as people who might like to speak of anniversaries or express casual affection in public or feel free to openly talk of the same ups and downs in a relationship that heterosexuals talk about to their family and co-workers. After I wrote Deliver Us from Evie, an educator wrote me this portion of this letter. What I wonder about is what are we going to do about books about homosexuality? Are librarians going to place these books in libraries? I'm glad they're being published, but parents do not want their children reading these books, and librarians are afraid to offer them. I don't think writers should quit writing them or publishers should quit publishing them, but who's going to buy them? Maybe this is a marketing question, unquote. <laughs> I answered her that apart from the audience of teens who know themselves to be homosexuals and the parents of these teens, there is a larger audience. It's the same one which studies the Holocaust without being Jewish and the civil rights movement without being black. What we hope for our children is not sympathy for those unlike us, but empathy and the realization that we're s all on this planet for some other reason than to set our sights against those of us who have a different sexual orientation, color, religion, financial status, ethnic group, mental or physical condition. In the early days before education about AIDS was mainstreamed, I was often asked not to speak about my book Night Kite with a growing understanding that AIDS is a health emergency which affects us all, that happens less and less. 
but now there are times when I'm asked to omit any reference to deliver us from Evie. Remember, one host said, these students are only in the eighth and ninth grade. While there are no sex scenes in the novel and the girls hardly interact at all, there is a happy ending. A kid acting as my guide that day said, your book about AIDS is different, see, because someone gets AIDS and dies. That's sad. But the worst thing you can be is a lesbian, most kids think. A bisexual's better. Even Madonna admits she's had women. I know I've narrowed down this subject somewhat with my own gay agenda, and I know, too, that the worst flack I ever received to date concerning one of my novels dealt with religion. It was a book called What I Really Think of You. So I'm open to all facets of this highly interesting subject before us tonight, and I thank you for asking me to participate. I'll start with a little short introduction about myself and the company, too, which kind of duplicate a little bit of what Sarah mentioned. So many of you probably don't know much about our company. So again, I'll start with a little introduction. Lee and Lowe was started five years ago and published our first book two years, two years later in 1993. We are a publisher with a specific focus on multicultural themes. And what that means to us is that we produce stories that children of color can identify with, but that all children can also enjoy. Um, since we started, we've published about 30 books and hardcovers and paperbacks and a number of Spanish translations. Now, we didn't start Lee and Lowe to break new ground or to, uh, or to make any political statements. All along, our mission is to publish good stories that are real. We don't do fa fantasies, we don't do folklores, and we don't do animal stories. 
what we do is publish stories about people who are our friends and neighbors. What surprised me, though, is that such a simple mission can sometimes be controversial or open up to tough subjects. One of the first books we published, this book called Baseball Saved Us, um, it's about a Japanese-American boy uh, who learned to play baseball at, uh, at an internment camp during World War II. Our distributor at the time thought the book was too controversial. Who cares about internment? It's too depressing. It's a part of history that no one would really want to bring up. So at the last minute before publication, they dropped us as a publisher. And last minute, uh, fortunately, we were able to find another distributor and launch the first list. A month after this book came out, we had a full-page review in the New York Times written by Ira Burkow, who's a sports columnist in the New York Times, saying that this is not just a good Japanese-American story, but a great sports story. And that put us on the map. And Baseball Saved Us has gone on to win numerous awards and has sold over 300,000 copies. Um, let's see, another book that we published, this book called Saturday at the New You, is about a girl spending a day at her mother's beauty salon. It ran into a bit of resistance from booksellers, not because this is an African-American story, but, specific, but specifically because the protagonist is dark and heavy set. The book has gotten a great review from Publishers, uh, Publishers Weekly and, and School Library Journal and has been named by Bank Street College as one of the best books of the year. But still, we have yet to find its, its audience in the trade. Uh, another book we published called Crack in the Wall came out in 93. It's about a Mexican-American boy uh, and his single mother. Has also won numerous races and got, we got an award. But it also has met with some criticism because it involves a poor Hispanic family with the mother out of work. While the book has also gotten good reviews, some school officials felt that the, the story depicts a stereotype. We, on the other hand, felt that it depicts a warm human story that reflects one segment of the Latino community. As you can see, I don't consider what we publish as tough subjects, just stories about how we live today. I think what is tough is the climate that we live in, you know, a, uh, a time when some, so some people in publishing see ethnic groups as a market and not as people. And therefore, some stories are published because it is about a right demographic group and not because it is a good story. What is also tough is the racial climate we live in, where there are expectations of how people should be reflected in the media. This can come from within as well as outside the ethnic groups that we write about. I think one problem we face at Lee and Lowe is that there are simply not enough stories about people of color. So every book we publish about Asian Americans, Latinos, and Native Americans are treated as though it is the end all book on that ethnic group. I wish that there is a wide selection of books on middle class as well as working class Hispanics. There are certainly wealthy blacks and there are poor Asians, but too often we don't see them in books for children. Just recently, we, just pu we published a, uh, a, a Chinese-American story called Sam and the Lucky Money. It's a Chinese New Year story, but it features a, a homeless Chinese man. And again, there's very little that this, I mean, it's not the, the center of the story, but it involves a homeless, uh, a, a homeless Chinese man. And it's not something that you see in the media very much. But again, they exist. I also wish that parents can treat books beyond their racial lines and look at the larger themes that they address, such as family, love, and trust, issues that we all share and, and can identify with. It's, it's funny, it's, it's usually the parents who seem to worry about the race, not the children. Finally, I wish writers um, would just write what they feel and not what they think publishers would like to see. And I know many of you are out there, so <laughs> keep up the good work. That's my <laughs> point. Okay. Now we're going to turn to Ellen here, Ellen Levine, who has um, uh, 
actually offered on quite short notice to take the place of Virginia Crowell, and uh, she will say a few words about Virginia, whom we, we miss having on the panel, but we are glad to have Ellen, too. Um, uh, Ellen is a friend of mine who I have happily met through Penn Children's Committee, uh, and uh, we share an interest in, in many things and uh, uh, have had uh, several similar experiences with, uh, with books that we have uh, written uh, that involve uh, people of color uh, different than ourselves. Uh, Ellen has written more than a dozen nonfiction books, uh, but she was not always a writer. She told me to refer to her as a lapsed lawyer. That's all right, a lapsed lawyer. And though she didn't say so, I suspect that some of her writing experience and her interviewing skills came to her uh, as a law student and a lawyer, and also uh, through the political science studies. Uh, she has a master's degree in political science. Uh, but she... Uh, is happily writing children's books. Her book, uh, her most recent book, A Fence Away from Freedom, uh, consists of interviews with Japanese Americans who lived through the, what I consider shameful U.S. Uh, episode of the internment camps of the Second World War. Uh, another very recent book, uh, also of interviews, is Freedom's Children, which uh, won a, a Jane Addams Award in 1994. This book revisits the young adults who, as children, personally took those courageous steps through schoolhouse doors uh, in an attempt to integrate the schools of the South. Uh, she has written books in the American History series on civil rights and the Underground Railroad. And she has also, uh, interestingly, written a biography of Anna Pavlova. She also practices the rather tough craft of woodcarving. <laughs> so, Ellen. Thanks, Vera. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, I'd like to talk about something that's uh, a little bit different. Um, for the recent years, there's been an emphasis in education and in books published for children, as uh, Philip was talking about, on diversity, on multiculturalism. Uh, that all of us who are who make up America are represented in America's stories. Uh, uh, concerns that we learn about and learn to respect the cultures of other groups. These are concerns I share, values, uh, values that I care about. These are issues really of the question of who gets talked about. But in the the rather large umbrella of multicultural concerns, there's an issue that is of particular interest to writers, uh, not just what subjects are talked about, but who talks about them. There is, for some editors and some publishers, a almost a de facto policy that you have to be of the group that you write about. Um, this this raises uh, well. There's there's a valid concern behind this. It's not not too long ago that there were not very many books about all the different groups, and that there were not very many writers and illustrators uh, who were minority people. Um, so th so there is a real concern here. Uh, the um, just for the record, well. 
before I say that, we now have many books. As, as Philip says, and is absolutely true, is we always want more good books, good stories. Um, we now have many more writers uh, and, and illustrators uh, who are minority people, and, and that is certainly as it should be. And again, there is always room for more. But in fact, some of our, our most well-known and honored writers are people of color now. Um, but for the record, le let me say that even if there still were a dearth, I believe that you should be able to write about whatever moves you. As long as you write with honesty and truthfully, you should be able to write it. I mean, let's, let's remember what's important. It's the book. Is the book good? Um, let me put the question starkly. Can, uh, if you're a Caucasian, should you be allowed to write about black Americans, uh, Japanese Americans, Chinese immigrants, as, as I have done about, about all of these subjects? Um, who would say, well, uh, I suppose we could, um, we could answer, we, we could ask the question uh, by extension, do you have to be a Jew to write about the Holocaust? Can only a Jew write about the Holocaust? Um, can only uh, a, a gay person write about gay issues? Can only a, a black American write about uh, the, uh, the horrors of slavery? Or conversely, um, conversely, can only a Jew be moved by the diary of Anne Frank? Can only a black person really appreciate and be appalled by the horrors of, of slavery? Can only a Japanese-American um, be moved by the, the, the atrocities of the, of the evacuation, the forced evacuation and the imprisonment of uh, 120,000 people driven from their homes? I mean, who would say, uh, what, what would be the reasons why someone would say, no, you can't write about these things? Who would say that? Well, I was at a, um, speaking at a conference this summer and uh, with Jimmy Kroll and, and some other friends, and I should take this total aside. I, I, I meant to start by saying I'm so sorry that you're not getting a chance to hear Jimmy. Uh, she's a wonderful writer, and in a very short period of time, three years, three and a half years, she's written over 30 books, most of them picture books. I mean, she's, she's the woman has six children. <laughs> And she's, she's written wonderful picture books, and uh, most of them are on multicultural issues. She herself is, um, is Caucasian and has some very interesting stories to tell, and I'm sorry you're missing that. If you're ever in a place where Ginny Kroll is on, a, on a, an agenda to speak, go hear her. She's wonderful. Um, and I, I will tell her that everybody wishes her well. Her, her son is, is possibly, her youngest son is possibly very ill. So anyway. Um, about Ginny, but I was at a conference this summer speaking. Ginny uh, was there, and it was a conference called um, Many Voices, One World. Uh, a, a very well-known black children's book writer was there who, was, who essentially argued that whites have no business writing about blacks, uh, about African-American issues. Um, what are the arguments made for this, that you you don't have the sensitivity for it, you don't have the background for it, that you're appropriating their stories, that you, once again, um, you're exploiting. 
by taking their stories. Um, I don't agree. I think that, I believe that we can cross, we can bridge ethnic and racial and cultural gaps. I don't think we should ever relinquish our ability and our desire to empathize with someone else. Isn't that the goal? Don't we want the kids, uh, uh, we want them to learn how to read, of course, but don't we want them, don't we want them to be able to empathize with others? Don't we want them to be able to connect with other people's stories? Don't we want to write good stories that engage them, whoever it's about, whatever the subject? If we don't do that, we end up with Bosnias and, and Rwandas. Okay. In the women's movement, we used to have a phrase, the personal is the political, and vice versa. I'll give you just a few of my own personal experiences with this. I have, like Susan, I have never had an editor or publisher who told me I couldn't write what I wanted to write about. I have had friends, I do have friends who have had that experience. It is out there. It does happen. Um, I have never experienced it. I have written books uh, about the Underground Railroad, about the Civil Rights Movement, about Japanese Americans, about a Chinese immigrant girl. Um, Freedom of Children, which was interviews, I, I was fascinated by the subject of black kids, not college kids, but kids, who were really the, the foot soldiers of the Civil Rights Movement and nobody had written about them. So I went south and I interviewed blacks who were kids at the time, not who didn't just live through it, but were active. A nine-year-old who's in jail for a week for the youngest kid walking out with a church group singing We Shall Overcome, put in jail without a parent for a week. Uh, the kid, in the black kid in Montgomery, Alabama, who did it before Rosa Parks. Nobody knows her story. Um, all their stories are there. Fence Away from Freedom. I interviewed Japanese Americans who went through the experience of being uprooted, lost everything, locked up in these camps. I mean, th th they're, they're stories to break your heart. The reaction I got from the people that I interviewed was warm and Freedom's Children came out in January of 93. In February, I got this huge Valentine card from all of the people from Montgomery, Alabama who were in the book. Fence away from freedom, the letters that I've gotten from Japanese Americans who were both in the book and those not in the book, moved to tears. In some cases, I was not just the first Caucasian they had talked to, but the first person they had told their stories to. Teachers and librarians of all colors have never, never said anything negative. Ginny tells stories about how they come up to her and they thank her for writing these books. I've had some of that experience. Kids. I was speaking in Saginaw, Michigan. Saginaw, the schools are tremendously, almost all segregated because of residential segregation. I'm in a school that's all black. I'm in the gym before it's about to begin. There are four fourth grade black boys sitting in the back of the room. I go back to talk to them. And we're talking, and then one of them says to me, how come you write all these books about blacks? And I gave him the answer I'd give an editor or a publisher or anybody who raises this question, and that's that. I care about these issues, whether they're about blacks or Latinos or Asian Americans or women or Jews, whoever. I care, and I'm, and I'm fascinated by stories of people, who ordinary people, who tap into something in themselves 
and and reach out to the humanity of others. Um, last story I want to tell you. I just had an absolutely fascinating experience. I was asked to come and talk to a GED uh, group of adults at Brooklyn College. And three or four classes got together. I went on a bitter cold recent Saturday morning. I get there and it's a room full of about 40 people and virtually all minorities, mostly black, not all. Uh, and I was asked by the teacher of one of the classes because they were using, they were doing readings from Freedom's Children. So I come in and they, she asked me would I come and talk about Freedom's Children. So I get there and I walk into the room and I give a little presentation. I talk about the book, why I wrote it, what I think was important. And when I get done, there's this silence. And then one woman raises her hand and she said, we thought you were black. And I think about that for a minute. I mean, what is she really saying? They read that book. They didn't read the book thinking, ugh, Hanky got it wrong. They read the book and it meant something to them. And their connection was that, you know, well, I'm black. Okay, then I get a question. Um, did you pay the people, now that, now that they see I'm white, did you pay the people you interviewed? I said, no. I said, people had a choice whether or not they wanted to talk to me. I told them what I was doing, that I wanted to tell their stories. People were very, very happy to talk to me. Next question. Oh, can you hear me in the back? I was just told to talk a little louder. Um, next question. Uh, did you give the money you made on this book to charities like United Negro College Fund? I said, no. Um, I said, uh, depending on how much money I make in a year, I give a, f I give a lot of money to charity, but it's not based on a particular book. This is my work. I said, just as, as your work is your work. And then I explained a little bit about the finances of book publishing. I said, you may, you may think that writers make a lot of money because you hear about Newt Gingrich getting $4 million, but <laughs> uh, particularly when you write books for young people, most of us get rather small advances and then you don't make any money on it until the book sells and pays back the advance. And then I said, they, they had paperback copies of Freedom's Children, and I said, you paid $3.99, $4 for that book. Um, that means that if you buy a book, I get 24 cents. And I was wrong, actually, I get 12 because I split that with the hardcover publisher. They were stunned. Then a woman raises her hand and says, do you feel guilty? I said, guilty? She said, yes, do you feel guilty because you're white? I said, no, um, I only feel guilty for what I do that's wrong, but not a free-floating guilt. She said, well, what about shame? I mean, aren't you ashamed of what whites have done? I said, no. I said, I'm ashamed for anybody who does anything that's terrible, but not free-floating guilt, shame. Then I said to her, what religion are you? She said, well, I'm not religious. I said, well, were you brought up in a religion? She said, yeah. I said, well, what was it? She said, well, I'm not religious. I said, well, was it Christian? She said, yeah. I said, well, do you feel guilty about anti-Semitism? She said, no. I said, okay. Then a man raises his hand and he said, you talked about the importance of you know, knowing about other cultures and doing uh, all kinds of different things. To write this book, did you, um, did you really, I mean, did you feel you had to learn about uh, African culture? I mean, didn't you think you should go to Africa to write this book so you could learn about it? I 
no, not for this book. Um, as a matter of fact, I've been to Africa, but not for this book. I said, this book is people are telling me their stories. These are blacks who were here in America at the time of the Civil Rights Movement, and they're telling me what their experiences are, and I'm listening. And if they wanted to tell me about any African-American, uh, African cultural heritage, they would have. They didn't. They were talking about their participation in the American Civil Rights Movement. We get done. I mean, it, w it, it was quite a scene there. <laughs> we get done, and a bunch of people came up, and all those people came up to get books autographed. And then the man who had spoken to me specifically about did I pay the people and had I gone to, why didn't I go to Africa? He looked at me and he said, I, I think you ought to write a book about people working together. And I thought that, I mean, okay, I, I, I conveyed something. We, we, we had a dialogue and we got it, got it across. Thank you. what Ellen said just before we uh, go on to Robin Harriswood. Uh, Ellen uh, put a lot of time into telling us the life of the book after the book is written and published in the way it functions uh, in the public uh, square, so to speak, and that is, is one of the great, uh, great uses of books on sub subjects, actually, is the amount of uh, controversial response they get, the resistances they bring up. They give a chance for students, children, parents, teachers, newspapers, and everybody to talk about these subjects, thus making it possible to, uh, to carry on furthering books. Now we go to, I suppose, what is often considered the tough topic, which is uh, sex. <laughs> uh, and uh, to our um, Roby Harris. Uh, uh, I am uh, best acquainted myself with Roby Harris's book of 1994, uh, It's Perfectly Normal, which is, uh, the subtitle is a book about changing bodies, growing up, sex, and sexual health. Uh, uh, I have spent some time with this book, and this book has received uh, oh, a, a great range of reviews, starred reviews, and feature articles from many sources, and was a Boston Globe and Horn Book uh, Honor Award for nonfiction. Uh, and uh, I was thinking, uh, we were talking a little bit about this, that perhaps it will be the book that is needed on this subject uh, every few decades to bring, um, to bring the kind of information and discussion of the, the, the whole topic of sex uh, for children into uh, a relation to the time in which they are living. But of course, this book doesn't spring uh, from nowhere. Uh, Roby Harris has long experience with children. She directed the after school program, uh, an after school program at Bank Street. Uh, she was a master teacher there. She taught in Head Start, uh, uh, has written for uh, the Captain Kangaroo Show, and produced and directed A Child's Eye View, which is a film uh, for parents and teachers on the daily life of children in uh, uh, an area of New York. Uh, she has raised her own two children and has also written uh, novels uh, for children. Uh, her latest nonfiction book is a picture book entitled Happy Birthday, and it's about all the things a newborn can do on the first day of life. Um, and uh, is also working on, you're working on a book uh, 
that will cover the similar material um, that is in the perfectly normal for younger children. Mm -hmm. right? Of course, all these things actually sound uh, entrancing and, and essential rather than tough, but <laughs> uh, we'll hear about it from Roby. Thank you. Thank you very much, Vera. Um, I guess in the letter that came from Steve Kroll, the line that he wrote that we should talk about what is most controversial in his or her work and how these areas of controversy are affected by today's publishing climate. I would say that nothing in the book I wrote about sex is controversial, and yet to some people every single word in there is controversial because of the way you view this topic and what you think about kids. Um, and so I'd just like to lay that on the table, that I think it depends where you are and what, where you come from and, and what it means to you as an adult. I think the kids are a whole different um, picture, and I'd like to talk about the kids. But I get asked by adults all the time since this book has come out, how does it feel to be surrounded by censorship? I'm asked that question day in, day out. And the truth of the matter is that I'm not a librarian, so I'm not on the front lines in the library. I'm not a teacher in school. I don't have to defend um, what I'm giving to kids. And in fact, I feel so supported by my family, my friends, by fellow writers, by my publishing house, um, by librarians, teachers, and you name it out there. I think that most people, despite what we hear on the media, really care about kids, and there's this whole vast middle that wants their kids to remain healthy. Um, just to give an example of the climate, and coax me if I go over time, please. Just to give an example of the climate, on the press release for this book out there, which you all know, but on the press release for this book, it says that I am a former elementary school teacher, a children's book author, and a parent. And five times when I've been on television shows, not radio, and I've walked into the show and said, hi, I'm Roby Harris, I'm here for the Vera show, the producer or the assistant producer has stepped back and said, and I dress more or less like I am tonight, you look like a mom with great surprise. <laughs> and we may laugh at that, that somebody is surprised that I look at a mom. But I think that they feel that somebody who talks about SEX, that topic, and puts it together with kids and teens, must not look like just a regular old mom. Um, and that somebody like me shouldn't be talking about that taboo um, subject in our culture and in our broad culture. Um, when I was out in Chicago, the Chicago Sun-Times did not run a story because uh, the reporter spent the whole morning in the playground talking to parents as they came in and out of the school um, about whether or not they would allow this a book like this in, in the school and in the school library, whether or not they would allow their children to read it. Not one parent out of 37 objected to the book and there was no story. I said to the reporter, I don't care if my book, this story is not in the Chicago Sun-Times, but what you need to write is a story that parents want help with their kids. And that's a story, but quote, it wasn't sexy enough. We all know the facts. Um, nine out of 10 parents in this country want sex ed. 20% of those who have developed AIDS are in, are in their teens and 20s, so we know when they were infected. The greatest increase in unintended births is girls 15 and younger. One in four teens have STDs, will contract an STD. This is who I wrote the book for, kids roughly age 10 and up. And uh, for me, this is an issue of public health, and we cannot afford to keep our kids uninformed. I believe that kids and teens have a right to have accurate information. After all, they already have information, but so much of it is so skewed 
and they have a lot of misinformation. So as I was writing this book, and in response to your question, what was the most, what I, you know, the climate out there, the climate that was in my head, and I guess I'm old enough to have that, now I'm gonna be 56, is I don't care. What I care is what's in the best interest of the child. And that's not to say that when I was writing about sexual intercourse, let's say, or masturbation, um, things that I never discussed in public before I did this book, that I didn't question it, and I didn't call my best friend, um, children's book author Elizabeth Levy, and say, wait a minute, I've just read this paragraph. <laughs> I've just read, written this paragraph. It's very honest. And she would say to me, as my friends would say to me, but Roby, you've always been honest. You need to be honest. You will have no credibility with kids unless you're honest. And so I tried to keep those things in, in mind. How I happened to do this book um, was that a wonderful editor here in New York City asked me if I wanted to do a book on HIV and AIDS for elementary school age kids. And my I never thought of it. Um, this was in 89. Um, my immediate response is if I were talking to kids this age, I'd like to do a book on healthy sexuality. And I left and went home and talked to my two kids who said, go for it, mom, and talked to my friends. And the next day, I met with the head of our Planned Parenthood. I then think I spent about six to eight months talking to every person I can, my kids' friends, their parents, teachers, pediatricians, you name it, anyone who worked with kids and said, what is it the kids need to know? Um, and again, I was not afraid of the climate. I was just afraid that, I was worried about that I might write about, for example, I might write about the sperm and the egg and how they meet and that I, by making it simple so that kids could understand it and know what happened, that I would then be inaccurate in terms of the science and that I would be giving inaccurate information and whether it was psychological or scientific information. So I got help, and again, I wasn't alone. And no one turned me down. As I called people, I called um, a very famous reproductive biologist over at Harvard Medical School. He said, come in. AIDS research, researcher out in San Francisco. He said, come in. And I think that I got the courage to keep going with this book because I found that there was a community of adults out there who had tremendous information and were willing to read everything I had done and go over it and to educate me about this topic. Um, and I guess the greatest task was how could I write a book that would both be serious and fun and to sort of get that balance. Um, yes, questions of controversy came in. I was asked, are you really going to put abortion in a book for kids? I said, they already know about it. They've already heard about it. Let's give them the facts. Let's be honest. Let's give both sides of the issue. Um, let's talk about the Supreme Court. Um, the most offensive question I'm asked over and over and over again is, how did you decide to put homosexuality in a book for kids? And this is up toward the front of the book, not in the back of the book, where it is in many books. And I said, it wasn't a decision. It was a given. And um, I had help from a um, historian, Bonnie Anderson, here in Brooklyn College, who told me about Spartan warriors and that they, male lovers were put in the same regiment so that they would fight harder for their, um, for their army and for their country, that they were the most formidable army in Greece. I wanted kids to know that homosexuality just didn't appear in San Francisco, that there was some, or parts of New York City or Boston in the 70s, that there's some historical perspective here. Now, I have been hit by one person from the right wing about that, but I can defend it and I won't do it tonight because I don't think I need to here. I can get into my family values issue um, and speak very easily. 
Um, the other part that I just want to hit on briefly before I close is that I worked with a wonderful illustrator, Michael Emberly, and it helped that we had a lot of shared values. So that when Michael would draw a picture, uh, uh, there's a double page spread of about 30 naked bodies. And it's it has to do with the fact that they're all kinds of bodies. And by the way, on television, again, I get asked, or the comment gets made, there are no perfect bodies in this book. And um, that becomes, that's the most controversial page in this book. <laughs> uh, and that is that there are a lot of naked bodies. And when I respond that, you know, naked doesn't equate sex every time. It helps when you, kids love this, it helps when you take off your clothes and take a shower after soccer. It's probably a good idea to take off your clothes. <laughs> but the point that I'm trying to make with this is that I knew the book had to be highly illustrated. And when I first talked with Michael, um, I said to him, look, we're probably going to get in a lot of trouble for this. But if we leave things out, by doing that, we're saying to kids and the adults, and I really mean that, we're saying to the kids, if we don't show you this or we don't show you that, then that means whatever we're not going to show you is taboo, filthy, wrong, dirty. And that's not what we want to do. And instead, we want to show through text and art caring, loving, respectful relationships. That's not the whole story we know. And we want to show respect for differences. And I guess that I want to end by saying that it was the challenge of doing the book that was the most difficult. We have had challenges, um, library challenges, and one challenge is too many challenges um, as far as I'm concerned. Most of the ones that we know about, and there are ones that we don't know about, have been turned down by the library board. Um, there's also what I call quiet censorship, which has been going on, and I think the librarians, by the way, are real heroes out there. But there are librarians who are shelving my book and many of yours in restricted shelves where kids are not going to get them. So that's a kind of quiet censorship. There's also a group called Family Friendly Libraries that is moving into state by state to, yes, thank you, <laughs> to say that um, the kids, the parents have the right to look at what their kids have checked out. Um, so these things are going on. There's also conversations on the internet among librarians about where to, where to shelve a book, which I think affects all of us as writers. And I, I think that that as long as we feel rock solid in what we're doing, uh, particularly when we're writing nonfiction for kids, that we have the facts, that we get the support of those experts out there in the field who will help you and help me in a split second without saying no, then I think we go out there and we write about what we believe in. And for me, the issue is, what do we do to keep our kids healthy? Most kids enter puberty healthy. And I think if a book or whatever kind of media can get to a child, maybe there's one kid out there who will read one fact, who will be fascinated about how his or her body works, have respect and some self-esteem for oneself, and maybe can stay healthy. It's not just a book that will do it, but maybe it can help. So what was controversial, um, all of these things in our culture are controversial, but for me, as I was writing them, they were just damn difficult. Thanks. Vera, I just, I just want to mention Craig Verdon's kit. Um, did I do that or do you want to? No, you go ahead. Um, I was just at a meeting the other day and I know that um, Bantam Doubleday and Dell, is that, is that how you say it? I can never say these big mouthfuls. 
um, has a censorship kit. It actually says first date on the front. And it's available to anybody who's interested by just calling them and they will send it out to you for free. And they're actually looking for feedback. They've worked on it with the American Library Association. And I think it just helps individuals, be it authors, editors, publishers, uh, schools, libraries, to ways to think about responding and standing up for as opposed to defending um, that we should have every book accessible to kids. Okay, well thank you everybody. I think we've had a great range of, um, of talk about what's in our book. Okay, thank you. Okay. And uh, now let's, uh, let's uh, have questions from the audience. You can direct them to one person, to several people, and uh, just say them loud or stand, stand up and say them if you would. Uh, I think we can hear from the back of the room and uh, that we will go on with this wonderful conversation. Okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you, Ruth. <laughs> That's wonderful to hear. Okay, now there was a hand next to you. Uh, yeah, you. Mm -hmm. Would you mind to stand up? I just think we'll be able to hear better. Okay. No, you don't have to. Does someone want to talk to that? Uh, the, a subtle possibility of economic censorship. You want to answer to that? Okay. Anybody want to add anything that, to that's that? probably censorship with a capital C, but I think there's the, the quiet, and, and I, th I guess my guess is, I, I'm, I don't know much about this, this is all new for me, my guess is that we may never know. Um, and
I mean, you know, in some cases, I don't know if it gets into every community, but at least they exist, and, and hopefully if someone looks hard, you know, they can find these folks. But it's true, I think, like what Robbie says, a lot of times it's not like we come across censorship with a capital C, but we just come across that resistance, the, the uncertainty, you know, let it be at the, at the school level or sometimes at the bookseller level or, you know, at the community level. I'll, I'll tell a Jimmy story. Uh, not it was this is fairly recent. She, well, she's only been doing this since '92, so everything is recent with her. Um, she she did a picture book uh, about Rosa Parks, and a uh, publishing house that publishes only minority. It's not it's not Lee and Lowe. Um, uh, books was very interested. She sent it to them. She got back a letter. We're absolutely interested. She got back a second letter. We're 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 working on you know we're just working out terms. We're I'm there's going to be somebody calling you uh, to talk to you. We want it. She gets a phone call from some editor, and a whole long discussion about the book, how much they love it, how terrific they think it is. And at the end of the conversation, suddenly the editor hesitates and says. I've got just one more question to ask you. And Ginny had a flash. She knew what was coming. And the woman said to her, are you African American? And Ginny responded, is that important to you? And the woman started to fluster and bluster. And Ginny said, well, um, uh, we'll talk again, and got off the phone. A week later, in an unmarked envelope, without the publisher's logo on it, she got the manuscript back, no note, no letter. This is not only in children's books. A very good dear friend of mine who is an agent has a client who's uh, a novelist, Caucasian, married to uh, an African-American, lives in uh, a black ghetto area in California, and has written a number of novels and a collection of very powerful short stories. And many of them are stories based uh, in ghetto life. And she lives there. It's her experience. Um, lined up with a publisher. And materials, they, they asked for bio materials and a photo. 
they got the photo. She's white. Contract was broken. Um, the ha that story has a happy ending. She got another publisher and signed a two-book contract and has gotten terrific reviews. So. That's that that was exactly the uh, the argument that uh, that I was suggesting uh, when they say we're we're exploiting. Um, well, it's, it's it's one aspect of it. Is what I meant that we're exploiting them. This is their turf, mm -hmm. and we're taking it over and uh, and marketing. Well, uh, aside from the the very quick answer that somebody here also raised, I, I think you don't want to read the book. Don't. Um, the field is open there. The important thing to me is good books. You don't, first place, because you're uh, African American, um, you don't personally know any more than I would know uh, about slavery. You've, you've had, uh, it's part of your background and your history. It's not part of mine, but you don't know any more about it as a personal matter than I do. Um, what's that wonderful, uh, book called Slave Dancer? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Paula Fox. Paula Fox. Uh, a marvelous book. I mean, it, it seems to me that if what you're making is simply a marketing um, and an economic argument, uh, go ahead and write the book and try and get it, get it sold. You have a right to, to try and sell. Absolutely. I, during the women's movement, I, I wanted... Cut it off fast, cut it off fast. I wanted women to be doing things. Uh, uh, but if somebody else can write about it and write movingly about it, more power to them. In fact, I think it's a very important lesson for kids today to see, in fact, that people of other groups can make that bridge and can reach across. I mean, it's interesting. They thought I was black. to that very quickly because you know as a multicultural publisher we walk that line all the time and I first of all I want to make clear that yes we only publish stories about people of color
but no, we don't use people of color exclusively. In fact, number of the stories we have, that this crack in the wall stories written by white author. Uh, we have this other book called, one of our, our most popular book called Zora Hurston and Chinaberry Tree, which is written by a white author, and it's actually teaches African American history at a, at a college level. And um, it's, it's something that we keep in mind. One thing that we want to do when we started being low five years ago is to encourage more new voices, because when we start looking around five years ago, there was a sort of like boom time for multicultural. Everyone's talking about it. A lot of publishers are imprints on it. But in fact, w when we start looking into it, we felt that there was still room because what was considered multicultural, again, as I mentioned in the beginning, was primarily folklore, and we didn't see enough contemporary stories that really reflect how we live today and who we are. Like, say, personally, as an Asian American, there's lots of stories about Asia, but there's really not that, much, that many stories about Asian Americans. Um, but so that's, that's really the position we want to take. But in terms of using people of the, the same ethnic background, again, we want to encourage more people. Again, five years ago, there were a lot of books published, but actually the field of writers and artists uh, who like uh, of color doing stories for children was still very limited. And so we really made a mission to encourage more people. Again, it's not a rule, it's, it's a goal, you know. Um, and, and I think, you know, what happened is, um, you know, what I see sometimes in the industry is this almost kind of this reverse racism, this paranoia racism where, you know, just because someone has a Spanish last name, they're instantly an expert on the subject. Mm -hmm. And in fact, we as publishers are as tough on people with of the, of the right ethnic background as people who are outside of that background. We made our author and illustrators go out and do research as much as, as people outside of the, the background because it's just unfair just to assume someone is a Sanchez and he's Dominican and he knows as much about South America as, as we all here do. Again, our, our book Baseball Save Us, the illustrator is Asian American, but he's Korean. He's not Japanese American. And so he had to do as much work as any other illustrators. And again, just because people are being judged on this last name, just because we get a manuscript and it's, you know, a Mochizuki who did Japanese American <coughs> story and therefore he knows everything about it, it's wrong. And I think that is sometimes a pattern that we see going on among publishers, that they instantly, if the right last name means it's right, it's equally wrong as judging authors of the wrong background. You know, so I don't want to. Did you still want to speak? Yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
I don't have anything to, to um, um, I don't know the book or, the, or okay. what the books were, I, I so it sounds more like a rumor, but I had heard that a, there, that a way down south that they were censoring books or getting a, a message across to a publisher that they didn't uh, want this kind of book was to send back the entire shipment rather than go through it and pick out the book that was offensive, just return the shipment. I thought that was a very effective way of censorship, but I haven't heard enough of it to, to say that that's being done. But I agree that I think there's a lot of uh, censorship, uh, and uh, and I wouldn't say that we've come a long way from the 70s. Uh, I, I really wouldn't. It's called Thinking Big, and it's a story of a, an eight-year-old girl by the name of Jamie Osborne, and it's a photo essay. She's a dwarf. Right. What?
<laughs> what do they have against fish? What's, what's your name? I want to ask, ask your name, your first name? Catherine. Oh, uh, thanks for the compliments. But I also wanted to tell you that w one of my most successful books has been about teenage dwarfs called Little Littles. And um, it's one of the, that's steadily reprinted. So we all have different experiences. It's funny. And uh, Little Little, uh, I never thought would be as successful as Harper's found it to be, and they use it for handicapped week and so forth. <laughs> but um, but I've never run into all these things that that you have about no Christmas trees and no dwarfs. It's a dark world you inhabit. <laughs> interesting that that is very interesting that this is is we uh, try so hard to achieve um, which is to get our book to represent a much greater uh, uh, range of people and to include the stories of uh, all the different kinds of people in our country particularly to include uh, uh, black Americans because they were actually definitely not in those books has now in some ways uh, has been infancy turned into uh, a, another kind of orthodoxy. But there is still the, um, the value in it that schools which not so long ago at all never paid the slightest bit of attention to the need for, the, for these things are now paying a great deal of attention to it. So that you do know when you go into a school that the children will have books with people who look like themselves. I mean, it, at least that. Then the whole fine points of whether these people are representative just as they should be now leads into a, just a, a whole uh, area of problems. But they will at least have, the, the, the books have opened up to include more people, but then it has turned into this, uh, this uh, again, a, a restriction of what we can do and, and uh, have to do. 